God, yes, help us to be attentive. Uh, help us to be ready. Help us to be eager, even hungry uh, for your word. For the things that you would have us know, for the people you would have us become. Uh, fill us with your spirit. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning to read it, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. When the day of Pentecost came, that day, Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection... When the day of Pentecost came, they, Jesus' 12 disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now that we're staying in Jerusalem at that time, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking mere Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native languages? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues or languages. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Amazed and perplexed, these God-fearing Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, a God-fearing Jew was someone who wasn't a Jew by birth or by ethnicity or race, but who had come into at least close to the inner circle by faith of the Jewish people. Amazed and perplexed, these God-fearing Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, as far away as Rome, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, asked one another, what does this mean? Some others, however, made fun of the disciples and scoffed, they have had too much wine. That's what it means. So there are three particularly big festivals and pilgrimages for the people of Israel. Shavuot was one of those, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, one of those three festivals. Jews and non-Jewish converts to Judaism would travel hundreds of miles from all over the Mediterranean, some from as far away as Rome, to be in Jerusalem for Shavuot, which is what is going on here. That's the context. And just such people, and many of them crowded into Jerusalem, were witnesses to this spontaneous spectacle, this thing that no one had ever seen or experienced or witnessed before. Very strange. Around the disciples on the Pentecost immediately following Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Luke, the author of Acts, tells his readers that these people were astounded, startled, shocked, and confused, baffled. And they asked one another, what does this mean? What is this strange thing all about? What does it mean? What's going on? What's its significance? And it's still the same question in some ways that many of us, much of the church, still ask today, what in the world is all of that about? 
What was it about? How does it apply to us? What was its significance? And then there were those who simply ignored what their eyes had seen and what others' eyes had seen and what appeared to be tongues of fire above Jesus' disciples, and they ignored what their ears had heard, the sound of this mighty rushing wind, and instead quickly decided that Jesus' disciples were simply inebriated. Easy explanation, easy out. I think these later unbelievers, skeptics, these people who decided that Jesus' disciples must have been drunk, I think those were the locals. They must have been poor souls who only knew one language, who only spoke one language, either Hebrew or Aramaic, who had never lived outside of Jerusalem or the immediate surrounding area of Jerusalem, that never lived outside of that area, never been exposed to other languages, never learned another language in school, lived fairly sheltered lives, and so they couldn't and didn't recognize any of these many other languages that Jesus' 12 disciples were all of a sudden speaking. And it was other languages. Today we might say Italian and Japanese and Korean and Mandarin and Arabic and Urdu and on and on. They were other languages that people were speaking. They, they were not speaking unintelligible sounds, indecipherable babble, prayer languages or worship languages. Rather, the disciples of Jesus who were Galileans, who were simple rural people for the most part, were somehow speaking the indigenous languages of people from Egypt and Libya and Mesopotamia and Rome. What did that mean? How did that happen? What was it about? And to answer that question, we really need to rewind to chapter one of the book of Acts, rewind one chapter where we read these important words. And after Jesus' suffering, he presented himself, Jesus, to his disciples and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with or in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. Then his disciples gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're off topic, locked in on kingdom. Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Just us, our kingdom, for us, just us. You see how they're missing the point. Jesus said to him, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What about the kingdom of Israel? After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And it is verse eight of chapter one that is widely understood to be the key to understanding all of the book of Acts and Luke, the author of Acts, thesis statement. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These concentric circles that are in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Holy Spirit, power, and witnesses. The Holy Spirit was the gift 
about which or about whom Jesus spoke in verse four and about whom Jesus had spoken before. And Jesus left his, after Jesus left his disciples' physical presence, he would come to be with them through and as his spirit, God's spirit. The Holy Spirit, not new in some ways, had always existed as part of the triune Godhead. Rewind all the way back to the second verse of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter one, verse two. And there the Holy Spirit of God is present, hovering over the deep, right? Participating in creation. So in some ways, the Holy Spirit was not new, but was being reintroduced here in this event and at this time. The Holy Spirit had always existed. Now he's back in a different way. To give us a little clearer handle about the Holy Spirit, I like the phrase coined by Gordon Fee, sort of New Testament scholar, renowned, brilliant man who called the Holy Spirit, defined the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. Let's say that together. God's empowering presence, which is a great way to remember who, how, what is Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence, which fits with the second word that stands out in verse eight, power. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what sort of power was Jesus talking about. There are all kinds of power there were and there are. Dunamis is the Greek word. So there's dynamite power. There's electric power, nuclear power, hydraulic power, turbo power, political power, legislative power, judicial power, military power, financial power, interpersonal power, muscle power, will power. Of what sort of power was Jesus speaking? Power to declare the wonders of God in languages and with words that other people, and maybe specifically people outside of the circle, can understand. Power to declare the wonders of God in languages and with words that people, all people, and especially those outside of the current circle, can understand. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all ends of the earth, and then there are witnesses. That's our third key word in this verse, witnesses. Literally in Greek, it is the word martyr, from which we get the English word martyr, of course. And what do martyrs or witnesses do? They tell what they have seen, they tell what they have witnessed, they bear witness to what they have known in their minds and through their experiences, through their eyes and through their ears. And Jesus says that his disciples, once baptized with or in the Holy Spirit, will have some new sort of power, the primary purpose of which is to communicate with others the good news of God's kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, and the wonders that God has done and continued to do and would do in and through Jesus. That's the power. And what does all this mean? Back to their original question. Holy Spirit, power, witnesses, it all means that God loves, that God is love, that God desires for his love in Jesus to be known, not just by the Jewish people, not by a limited group, not just by the church, not by the insiders, not by religious people, not by the good people, not by the nice people, not by the pretty people, 
by by all people everywhere. That's what's behind all of this. What does all this mean? This is exactly what it means. That God is love. God is overflowing with love. And he wants that love known in Jesus, through Jesus, to people, by people, for people. That's what this means. And that at its core is what for 2,000 years Pentecost and all of our fun stuff, which is fun, has been about for the church for 2,000 years, sort of, in theory, in theory. But in reality, things may be a little different. I've shared with you before that I grew up in a church and a culture, a Christian culture, a Christian church, that didn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, did talk about God the Father, did talk about Jesus as the Son of God, but we heard very little about the Holy Spirit. Moreover, not only was the Holy Spirit treated as the quiet, respectfully, as the quiet member of the Trinity, but the Holy Spirit was often at the same time forgotten or ignored in retrospect. Other than when we stood up uh, during worship every Sunday and recited the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus, his Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Other than that, the Holy Spirit got very little airtime, almost none, in my growing up and in my experience, and maybe in yours as well. Very little attention. And yet, for Jesus, the Holy Spirit seems to be indispensable, which may explain the seeming powerlessness of much of the church, or at least much of the church in America today. And much of the church has seemingly become okay with that as long as the church membership and budget are holding steady and my needs and the needs of the rest of the church are being met, and every once in a while the church does something nice for the community, enough to remain in good standing with the community, then everything's okay. After all, some of us, like me, have learned to live by our own strength, by our own power, in our own strength, in our own power, in control of our own lives, making decisions for ourselves, guided by ourselves, and for ourselves, relying on our own, my own wisdom. Many of us have come to live in that way and are seemingly okay with it. And yet the fruit of such an existence is far from the kingdom that God invites us into, the, to which God calls us. In the words of the pastor and author and some said prophet, 20th century prophet, A.W. Tozer, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I'm gonna read it again. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. A spiritless church is a powerless church. And a spiritless church is an inward-focused church as the power from the Holy Spirit or the spiritual power is at its core the power to speak with the Spirit's help about the wonders of God in Christ Jesus in ways that others out there, not in here, 
can understand and hear. I've mentioned a couple times, you're getting tired of me saying this, but on Friday mornings, there's a group of us men who gather and study the scriptures together, and for a number of months now, we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, written by Luke. Luke is volume one. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is volume one. Uh, the book of Acts is kind of his volume two. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is kind of about Jesus, kind of a biography of Jesus, we could say. It's, it's an oversimplification the book of Acts is kind of a biography of the Holy Spirit, also kind of an oversimplification, but you uh, get the point. And one of the things that we've seen over and over and over in Luke's gospel is Jesus' people, or in the book of Acts rather, Jesus' people speaking, sharing, proclaiming boldly with power. People like Stephen and Peter and then Paul they speak, they're filled with the Spirit, they speak with power, things happen, people are persuaded, things change. The gospel's heard by new and different people over and over and over and over. And these words keep occurring, Spirit, Holy Spirit, preach, teach, proclaim, announce, speak, and then boldly. And then in another chapter, boldly and then boldly, and then boldly. It's interesting, the word boldly, this is easy to look up on, online, happens, occurs 10 times in the Bible. And in the Old and New Testament together, 10 times boldly. Six of those times are in the book of Acts in six different chapters. This typifies what they were doing, what they were about, what it looks like to be empowered or filled with God's spirit. The New Testament church was inherently a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led community. And the spirit, having baptized people or filled people, sent them, opened doors, not always easy doors, not always an easy path, but always to proclaim the wonders of God to people who up to that point had not been included, at least outwardly and visibly, in God's family. The Christian faith is inherently an evangelical faith, not in the sort of tainted bad negative sense of that word now but in the sharing proclaiming announcing to others the going out good news evangelical in languages and with words that people can understand with the result being that god is glorified that people know god is love people are loved by god and god is glorified and so the church is a community or a collective of people defined not only by being forgiven by god and not only by it's love for one another, not only by doing good for others, but also by spirit-empowered, gospel-proclaiming, announcing, going, telling. That sort of impulse. Is that us? Is that us? And if not, could it be us? The answer is yes. And how does that come about? In the passage at the beginning of Acts 2, the author Luke simply records that when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them in this dramatic, visible, audible way, they were just being together. The disciples are simply together. They weren't, as far as Luke tells us, they weren't praying. They could have been. They weren't worshiping. They weren't singing lovely songs. They didn't have their hands raised. They weren't lying prostrate on the ground. They weren't singing their hearts out. They weren't serving. They weren't studying the scriptures. They weren't doing anything in particular 
that Luke notes. They were just being together. They, are, they also weren't cowering. They weren't hiding, as we sometimes get the idea that Jesus' disciples were doing after his crucifixion, they sort of retreated, hid, cowered in fear. That, that's all gone. That's not what they're doing anymore. The resurrection ended all of that. But they're just being, waiting, anticipating, maybe. They were together. And sometimes that's when God shows up or breaks in. The disciples were probably also generally attentive, watching, as Jesus said. But besides that, Luke doesn't tell us much about what to do, exactly how to be filled with God's Spirit, how to have orchestrate, make something like that happen all over again. It does a couple more times in the book of Acts. But how that's facilitated by human beings, it's not really. It's a God thing. In chapter 8 of the book of uh, Acts, there's this time where uh, Peter and John recognize that uh, this group of people have been baptized in Jesus' name, but for some reason weren't with that or along with that or at the same time are also filled with God's Spirit. So they prayed for them, and Luke tells us that they were filled with God's Spirit at that time after Peter and John prayed for them, but there's no indication or mandate that praying for someone to be filled or anointed or baptized with the Holy Spirit brings that about. This is often and almost always in the book of Acts and in the scriptures and in our experience, not something we can bring about, but something that God does in God's timing. You remember uh, Jesus says in chapter three of John's gospel, the spirit or the wind It's the same word in Greek, pneuma. The wind blows where it will, when it will, as it will. You see its effect in the trees, but we can't control it. The wind blows where it will, when it will. So it is with the Spirit. To quote Jesus, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I would say this, though, two general criteria for receiving the Holy Spirit might be, might be readiness and willingness. But even those two things are not always present in the book of Acts when people are apprehended by God. Think of the Apostle Paul, for starters, who didn't necessarily want what God had to offer in Jesus, but he got it anyway. Thanks be to God. The Spirit blows wherever and whenever it pleases. But as much as it's up to you and me, do we, and I think this is a question each of us gets to answer for ourselves and a community and as a church, do we want more of what the Holy Spirit offered? Do we want more of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Do we want the Holy Spirit to have a bigger place in our lives? I think those are the big questions for us today and on Pentecost. The result in the book of Acts, if we read just a little farther in chapter 2, the result is that 3,000 people who hadn't planned to see a spontaneous spectacle that day in Jerusalem, but God brought to himself 3,000 people. Talk about exponential growth. Is there any reason that God wouldn't also want to do that today through people who are filled with his Spirit? prepared and ready to speak as God leads, to tell, to announce, to proclaim 
the wonders of God and the goodness of God in Jesus so that God might be glorified and so that that big circle might get even bigger. What about the kingdom of Israel? God bless Israel today. Just asking their question then. Oh, God has great plans for them, but even bigger plans for the rest of the world. Let's pray. God, we invite you to come upon us and to come within us and to baptize us with your spirit, to fill us as a congregation, as a body, as a church, and as individuals with your spirit. We don't know how that works. We know that we can't force that. Some of us aren't even sure we want that but we ask you to help us to want that and to trust you to be available to you however you will. And that through your spirit in us and among us and tying us together and sending us out and giving us words that you would be honored and glorified and praised and that your kingdom might come. Your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.